0: You're listening to Who Raised You Podcast, a kitchen table conversation between Karen Jia Yang and Treasure Shields Redmond.
1: Unfurled and unafraid, we're centering voices of color from flyover country, and we start every podcast with a poem.
2: Anna O. Castro Guzan, a novel in nine. The war breaks. Resources are scarce. The oldest boy is sent down the mountain for food. The house is empty when he returns. His family is split into different camps. They do all they can to reunite. His mother returns without his sisters, his father returns, without his brothers, the boy never loses, his need to apologize.
1: What if a black poet from Mississippi and a Taiwanese-American minister from Silicon Valley had a podcast?
0: We're about to find out.
1: We might even blow up, shu
0: You're listening to Who Raised You? A kitchen table conversation between Karen Jialian Yang and Treasure Shields Redmond. Whoop whoop. As we explore how culture, family, and intersecting identities pave our way toward liberation, we want to know who raised you? Hmm. We're curious. And nowadays, especially with barricades going up across courthouses, we're pretty irritated. Mm -hmm. Sit down. We have lots to talk about.
1: Today, we're joined by Joss Barton, a writer, photographer, journalist, and artist documenting queer and trans life and love in St. Louis. She was most recently a 2016 fellow at Topside Press's Writers Workshop for Trans Women Writers and a 2013 Fiction Fellow at the Lambda Literary Foundation's Emerging LGBT Writers Retreat. Her work has been published by Ethical Press, Vice Magazine, HIV Here and Now, Locus, a post-queer nation zine, and Vetch Poetry, a transgender poetry journal. Clearly, she is brilliant and full of Latina girl magic and beauty. Thank you. Hi. Hello.
2: Hi. Hi, Karen. Hi, Treasure.
1: Hey. We're, we're so glad so to have glad you,
2: you here. here. Thank you for yes. inviting me. Thank you so much. I, I,
1: we don't have smell of vision or <laughs>
2: smell of radio. No,
1: we have to describe it for but, you. um, But she smells delicious. That's all I can say. <laughs> okay,
0: what what kind of delicious though? Cuz I didn't sniff her. Is it like floral or is it fruity or is it's, it uh, like, No, it's musky,
1: grown it's, grown It, it is musky.
2: <laughs> it is some musky.
0: It is well, some yeah. musky. Right. <laughs> I'm saying that
2: really terribly, it but some, you know what I'm saying? It is it's some musky. Yeah, like mm-hmm. second like wife like, um, <laughs> County, not, Ladoo, not the first one. The second like, the one. The second wife. The
1: second one. Herney. The second one, yes. <laughs> when you've leveled up and uh, not
3: what you want. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> All right, so we have to start off with the, the infamous first question, which is <laughs> Joss, who raised you?
2: I was raised by my mother, Carolyn Barton, and my father, Donnie Barton in a small little hamlet (laughs) in rural Southeast Missouri. Mm
3: -hmm. I am a
2: child of adoption. Uh, I was born in Guatemala, uh, but my parents who are actually white um, adopted me at a month old and so I grew up, I had spent pretty much my entire life in rural Southeast Missouri. Mm -hmm. Um, I was raised by them, obviously my extended family, raised by members of their church. I grew up in a very evangelical, um, Christian church, mm. um, and so yeah, I guess that's the short answer. <laughs> wow,
1: that there's a lot to unpack. There. There's a so lot. Much.
2: There's a lot, but there's I mean, they were the people that raised me mm-hmm. from childhood. I would also include the queer and trans um, elders and chosen family in my life as other people that have raised me. Mm. Uh, as a thirty-year-old trans woman. Here in St. Louis, I have been raised by a ton of people that are not my, uh, quote, unquote, um, patriarchal and matriarchal family. Mm. So Mm -hmm. I also have that kind of raising that has influenced my life and my art and my my writing. Mm -hmm.
1: That's true. It makes so much sense. Well, you know, this episode, we, we invited you because you're so fashionable.
2: I try
1: as well as brilliant. <laughs> and you. um, I just want to ask you, like, who raised your style, and how did your style uh, grow
2: up? I sense of how did style. it start.
1: So, okay, you're 30.
2: I'm 30 years old. So
1: that means that you were a teen 15 years ago. Can yep. I do math? Uh, what what year is it like this?
2: early 2000s so
1: early 2000s okay early 2000s. Oh. but i'm a 90s baby so
2: i grew up in the 90s
1: okay okay so, I was, so like, fat school. jeans
2: yeah like fat
1: tennis shoes yeah yes yeah, fat shirts.
2: fat shirt <laughs> chunky <laughs> shoes yes Flannel. overall yes, yes. i yes. think
3: yeah lots of
2: bright neon colors. oh yeah the windbreaker um, I it's really interesting looking back at uh, childhood photos of myself and my brother. I have a brother um, who's not adopted, um, mm-hmm. who is my who is my parents' biological child, mm-hmm. who is a year younger than me. And yeah, looking back at photos of us as little kids, <laughs> my mother was obsessed with dressing us alike, even though we were well. I guess we were very close in age, mm-hmm. so we could wear the same size clothes. <laughs> But she was obsessed with dressing us alike, Mm. almost as if we were twins, but we were clearly not (laughs) twins. And a lot of those clothes, when I look back at those pictures, uh, they really do warm my heart because she had us decked out Mm -hmm. in my matching corduroy, little jumper overalls, and little cowboy boots, (laughs) and little matching hats and matching like uh, sailor stripe t-shirts did you
0: like that or did you put up with it I (laughs) I mean
2: it's hard for me to really remember like being that young Mm -hmm. but looking back on the pictures I loved it (laughs) as an adult I think it's adorable my earliest memory of like I guess clothing uh, well I have two very early memories of clothing one was that uh, my father, who uh, was a Marine, uh, teaching me how to, like, line up my belt buckle to mm. my pants and my mm. T-shirt. Very, like, orderly, yeah. uniform type yeah. of Yeah, and things that we would, like, the, the nice clothes that they would put us in when we would go to church. Mm-hmm. And so I really, for some reason, I distinctly remember my dad's, like, t- you know, like this is how you're supposed to button your shirt and lining up with your belt and then like it's supposed to be lined up with your the fly of your pants it was really weird but yeah. i really re- i distinctly <laughs> remember that and the other thing i distinctly remember was raiding my mother's closet and wearing her necklaces and yes! high heels and putting on like <laughs> Her clothes and her dresses and her skirts and my parents thinking was the most funniest thing and just taking pictures of me. <laughs> and so I would like wear my mother's clothes around the house and mm-hmm. like just play around in them and my my parents would take pictures of it. Uh that lasted for a little bit until they're like, Oh, this 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 <laughs> gotta They were like, Oh, she likes she likes she it likes a little it. too much. <laughs> but those are kind those are the earliest memories that I have around like clothing and fashion and expression. Um and uh I don't think it's a coincidence that they're very gendered yeah. memories.
1: Yes, that's what I'm thinking about. And I'm also not just gendered, but also I think your mother was explicitly trying to build family because they chose, they chose a baby, which is very special. So that lets you know, like she was into motherhood. Yeah. I came to motherhood. I, my child was planned, but I was Mm -hmm. unaware of the work. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I was
0: shocked. (laughs) I was totally
1: shocked. Like she sounds like she threw herself into it. Yeah, she
2: did. Um, she, uh, my parents were married very young, right out of basically high school, mm-hmm. so they were like, what, 18, mm-hmm. 19, 20 years old, and they tried to have children for almost 10 years, and it's never happened, and it wasn't until they were in their 30s that they decided to adopt Once they got all the paperwork signed and went through the adoption agency in the states and also coordinated with the American Embassy Mm -hmm. in Guatemala, and they basically, back then, from what I understand my parents telling me, they basically got a call one day. They're like, okay, we have a child if you want it. If you want him, um, (laughs) (laughs) you would need to come down immediately uh, so you could fill out paperwork and everything and so that's basically what happened and my mother uh actually went by herself she had never flown on a plane her entire life really and she got on a plane pam ann remember, <laughs> pam ann, remember? back in the day back pam in the ann. day pam ann. Never she flown.
0: had so that never like flown she had never flown courageous especially when i talk to people who've never flown and they're afraid of flying it's it's very a very real thing there's so many things that go into it that they don't
2: i'm sure Mm -hmm. so she she flew from st louis to i believe i believe she flew to like somewhere in mexico possibly and then from there she had to get on just like, like what do they call those planes a
1: commuter? Like, like a little commuter. Yeah, like a
2: little commuter plane <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> that was to start a, singing Help Me Rhonda. Yeah, it was basically <laughs> Help Me Rhonda that she told told she really was like, Yeah, it was really wobbly and <laughs> mm-hmm. it was probably terrifying for her to be mm-hmm. going on a nice plane to like this little rickety plane mm-hmm. and then she flew to Guatemala mm-hmm. by herself and doesn't know spanish she's from rural uh, ozarkian mm-hmm. hills of mm-hmm. missouri okay and she by herself just had to figure it out um, met with the people she needed to meet with and filled out the paperwork uh got me from the hospital that i had been staying in for a month basically by myself mm-hmm. uh, after my uh, birth parents had given me up and you know fill out my citizenship papers, and flew back with me by herself. Wow. And that was before you know, we had accommodations for infants on planes, so mm-hmm. she had to hold me the entire like 15-hour flight back yeah. <laughs> to Missouri. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I think that is definitely a, an aspect of my mother that I really do appreciate and mm-hmm. respect a lot, mm-hmm. the amount of that it took to do that um, mm-hmm. as a young young woman mm-hmm. very
1: the, very intentional
2: yes very intentional and
1: was she like that about her own personal fashion
2: ah uh, you know it's she, when I look at pictures of my my parents from when they were younger they were very fashionable for the time and I love really? it they really were <laughs> now they kind of just look like your normal mom and pop that are there, they 16, <laughs> She's you know. There's
0: comfortable after a while comfortable, while. after a while. comfortable after a while,
2: but I always really just loved the clothes that she wore growing up. You know, they were fashionable, lots of colors and lots of patterns. Mm. And I think I kind of, kind of rubbed off. I think it rubbed off a little bit, a little yeah. bit on me. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so yeah. Mm.
0: I'm reminded of, uh, our, our last podcast session, we talked a little bit about, um, people's experience with diaspora, like when you're Mm. taken from one place to another, Mm -hmm. is, is that something that you ever think about? And, you know, sometimes I talk to people who, you know, themselves are immigrants or, you know, are second generation, I'm second generation. And, um, You know, do you think of yourself as U.S. American? Do you think of yourself as Guatemalan? Do you do not think of yourself in those categories? Yeah,
2: that's a very interesting question that um, in my experience uh, reading other accounts and talking to other people, it's really very an insular experience that only certain uh, people experience who have been adopted Mm -hmm. into a family that's a different race and almost Mm -hmm. in different nationalities than where they were. Born mm-hmm. and it's a very interesting, interesting uh, concept. Um, nowadays, a lot of the conversations and I guess if you would call it the the research or theory making around you know adoption and those situations are really like you know try to integrate the child in as yeah. much cultural relevant um, background and information mm-hmm. as possible, so they kind of have an understanding of like. This is how the world views me outside of my home. Yeah. And mm. these are the ways in which, you know, um, even though you're, you know, people raising you don't have this background in this culture, mm-hmm. um, the, where you came from has this rich history. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in nineteen eighty six. That was not <laughs> a part of the discussion. Right. <laughs> and they I, were
1: like, here's your white drag. Yes. On your white drag. It really was okay. a white drag. Yes, okay. exactly.
2: That's the perfect way to describe mm-hmm. it. And I I grew up in an all white town, in an all white school, in mm-hmm. an all white church. So mm-hmm. uh, although my parents were, you know, told me from a very young age, another one of the earliest memories I have, another one of the earliest memories I have is my parents telling me, you know, you were chosen, We adopted you, telling me, telling me the story of my adoption many times ad nauseum to the point where like, okay, I get it,
3: <laughs>
2: but not really appreciating it as a young child, but mm-hmm. it was something that was drilled into me from a young age. So mm-hmm. although I knew I was adopted from a young age, The concept of race and culture and ethnicity didn't really hit me until I got older and realized, oh, wow, I I don't look anything like any of these people. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a very interesting situation, especially um, as a writer and an artist that really deals heavily in identity and culture. Mm. Um, uh, It definitely has given me a perspective that not a lot of people have. Also, kind of creates for me. I can't speak to anyone and everyone that's had my experience, but I mean, it does create almost a void in your life mm-hmm. that almost feels like you know you're constantly trying to figure out you know who you are because you have always known from a very young age. I don't resemble mm-hmm. the the world in which I I, I find myself in, and mm-hmm. it's almost constantly reinforced into your face, even though it may not be. A vicious reinforcement. Sometimes it's just like, wow, I don't don't look like these people, mm-hmm. um, you know. And even though I grew up in a very homogeneous society in my rural town, the, the difference, just the outlying physical difference, you know, does have a big effect on you mm. if you are the outsider or mm-hmm. the other or the you know the black sheep, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you mm-hmm. will. Um, so, yeah. Or the
1: lovely cocoa brown
2: sheep. <laughs> okay, yes. The brown sugar sheet. Right. But uh, yeah, so it definitely gives me a very interesting experience to work from that definitely has influenced my writing, my art, and it has been a process for me, I think, to work through, but mm. not one that I regret in any way. But it definitely gives me a dis- a different a different perspective on the world, like,
3: I think. Mm.
0: You know, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering how, um, you know, at, at certain points in my life when things have been really tough, I've turned to writing and just mm-hmm. at some point I learned, you know, you can do free writing and you can just yeah. get everything out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware that there's a lot of reasons why people do writing. Yeah. You write, you know, treasure a po- poet. So that's also a form of writing. I'm clearly writing some sort of questions for you all. <laughs> so that's also writing. Um, what part of writing is about just expressing and working through and processing stuff Mm -hmm. and what part of it is in some ways to kind of write yourself into a story or like write yourself into the world so that other people can see that your existence is a
3: possibility.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think all of those different, uh, ways of narrative that you describe, uh, exist that they can exist i think are totally valid for me i've kind of always felt that my writing is really a way and i guess this might be a selfish way to look at it but it's a way in which how my writing allows me to find things out about myself Mm. that i didn't know before i started writing Mm. i feel very very Incapable of trying to write something to enlighten a stranger or even my best friend. Okay. So for me, writing has always been an insular experience. You know, what What is it about myself, my desires, my pain, my, my joy, um, the ugly parts of myself? Mm-hmm. How can I explore those in my writing so that when I'm done and I come out of a piece, I learn something about myself? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a selfish way to write but it's really the only thing that feels uh, authentic to me mm. on, like if i'm trying to teach someone through my writing it almost never works mm. I, it's, I just look at like this is this is horrible yeah. <laughs> this is horrible i would That's never i would never Writers put this out of the very world very critical yeah. of their work but if yeah. i'm writing so that i am trying to teach myself something mm. um, and of course i'm using sorts of different structural methods mm. uh, dialogue character development poetry prose mm-hmm. you know use
0: I, all your tools use, you yeah, have, yeah, yeah you have the tools sure.
2: but if i'm working if i'm starting from the place of you know there's something about me you know because i really believe that you know every person is complicit in the world that we live in in some way mm-hmm. the city system so if i'm writing about the the ways in which we have these systems of the world that oppress us, that oppress trans women or people of color mm-hmm. or poor people in this country. Um, people that are not able bodied. Um, if I'm writing about these systems, how am I complicit in these systems? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I'm writing from that perspective to start with, it, to me, it feels that the writing is healthy and productive, and speaks to a a reality that is more authentic and useful than if I'm just trying to lecture people about the injustice that I see. Right. Because I know that I'm a part of that injustice in some way. Sure. I've I've helped facilitate it somehow. and there's we can you know there's a million different ways you can examine that but mm-hmm. knowing that you know you are we are not absolved of this this inhumanity that we find ourselves in
1: mm. so it's kind of like you're grabbing us by the ears <laughs> and you know recentering our attention to our own complicity yes and you know i experience your work as highly erotic. Mm. And I know that <laughs> other people could experience it as yeah. shocking. I'm, mm. I'm using air quotes, so <laughs> but you guys can see it. But desire is never shocking to me. It just is. Right, yeah Right? Yeah. You earlier told us a story about putting on your mother's lingerie. And that is also erotic. Even in your nascent sexuality. Right. There's an there's an eros there. Mm-hmm. So I want to know. Your focus is definitely gender, race, but the focus on the erotic, what purpose does that serve in your work?
2: Oh, I do love sex. I love sex. <laughs> <laughs> I love my That's body. Awesome. <laughs> I love my body. I love playing with other people's bodies. Mm-hmm. And But as a writing tool, I think that sexuality or desires or what some people might call it fetish mm-hmm. or kink. I think people underestimate the ways in which those parts of our human existence can really, really pinpoint and highlight um, how human beings really behave mm. and think about each other, relate to each other, relate to the wider world around them. Um, so it's always been something that's interested me. I think also growing up in a very religious community where the stories about desire and sexuality were always Laced with this this, evil, judgment? this, yeah, this abomination. <laughs> I wondered about. I wonder judgment. what you're kind of writing against your. body. Yeah, I did. I yeah, I think it, I, there's no way. I used to. I remember. I used to read. I used to seek out every sexual scene in the Bible mm. and just devour it. <laughs> yeah. Like almost like just like oh wow like even though it was written in this place of judgment like oh these people are gonna go to hell because they had sex with an animal but I was just like reading like. <laughs> Having sex with an animal, what? <laughs> um, or you know, like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. or um, uh, uh, Samson and Delilah, like those erotic stories of mm-hmm. Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, these these erotic stories, um this has always kind of like interested me and like uh, fascinated me. Um, and I kind of, I guess, a lot of uh, a lot of what I write about, although. I I honestly do kind of see, I see it as empowering, but it is very, it, it, the shock factor, I think, when people hear my work, it's shocking because it's almost, it's almost, uh, unapologetic and the the depravity of what we do to each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think that's something that should, should be, you know, shied away from. And yeah that's kind of where I come from Mm -hmm. a lot of yeah I don't know I I grew up with a lot of although I I have no desire to 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 be in the congregation of these men anymore but Mm -hmm. I grew up with a lot of fire and brimstone revival preachers and Mm -hmm. although I think what they were preaching was very destructive and how they, they, they position like our place in the world mm-hmm. and the subjugation of what you should be doing to a quote unquote god, mm-hmm. but the way in which they told they could tell stories through their body language, mm-hmm. their voice, their inflections, you know, um, it is it was mesmerizing when I was a child. And so I guess I try to try to hone that a little bit in my writing.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's really interesting, Treasure, that you bring up the erotic in your writing, Joss, because when I because I had not heard of you until Treasure (laughs) said we should have Joss on our podcast. Mm -hmm. And the more I read into kind of what you've shared in terms of interviews and also on your blog and things like that, the more I really felt, oh, my gosh, I see why Treasure said we have to have her on here, (laughs) because there's something about your writing that's really compelling and it's very like juicy and rich because mm-hmm. it's it's something where when you're reading it you can't help but feel and I think that might be the eroticism that you're talking about that it's sensual because the body is really important there mm-hmm. and when I was reading it what I was struck with was that you're playing with kind of the contrast between life and death yeah, that yeah. it seems like there's really high stakes in whatever you're writing about that. Um, you know, there's some people who write and they really love the little mundane things. Yeah. That it's yeah. like, oh, you know, so and so is just cooking in the kitchen and, mm-hmm. you know, the slight smile that they had. Yours is not boring like that. <laughs> and that's not to say that that writing's not important. Yeah, it's that not, writing yeah, can is be very, really it beautiful. Is very, it is very, but that's not your approach, is how I
2: felt. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I <laughs>
0: I totally
4: understand what you're saying.
2: Yeah. I do love the mundane though. I love the, I love nuanced writings, mm-hmm. writers mm-hmm. and nuanced writing like that. I do, I love it. And when I read it, I just, I sal, I salivate over mm-hmm. the nuance. Sure. It's hard for me to write like that. Um, but sometimes I feel like I, there's parts of my writing that is a little bit more mm-hmm. mundane and nuanced. It's just, it's, those are more the gems hidden mm-hmm. in my stuff. Right. Um, yeah. I think again, a lot of it just comes back from, I think, from my my background coming from a very very religious upbringing. Upbringing where, if in that world, it is life or death situation. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're not obedient to the quote unquote word of God, mm-hmm. you know, well, you're going to hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that always kind of stuck with me, even though I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I it does it does fascinate me how oh, how storytelling in that kind of way can really influence how people view themselves in the Mm -hmm. world um, and the way in which they decide to treat other people Mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, if I'm doing that a little bit in my writing, it's really to try to encourage people to to love each other a little bit more. there's,
1: there's a concept.
0: Well, yeah. Well, I, think, I think also not just love in this very like abstract sense, but mm. that there, the love takes very specific like embodied form. Yeah. Yes. Like sometimes it's Justice. very salty mm-hmm. through your tears. Sometimes <laughs> it's salty through your sweat. Sometimes mm. it takes blood, you know, yeah. all, all different things that you feel. I'm reflecting on my own evangelical background. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. Okay. And so there is kind of like some of those more conserving overtones. And um, at the same time, it was in Silicon Valley. So I was <laughs> raised by all these like, you know, tech, like nerdy, geeky folks. Like my pastor, uh, Treasure knows this. My senior pastor for most of the time was a vice president of like a like an engineering like software design yeah so yeah so so there was both the very intellectual kind of like here's the historical background this is what it's about aspect but then there were some of those holdovers that you're talking about of religion where uh, you know I went to seminary so like I, I've learned that there is that kind of Western, like especially like Greek concepts, where the body is your enemy, and it's really you right. want to get to the like Platonic ideal of the mind and all the these like perfect things, and right. you, and you want to push away the desire, you want to push away your body, which is going to be um, holding you back.
2: Right, mm. right. Um, I totally agree with that. It's really interesting thinking about the ways in which the influences I have growing up um totally totally seem almost ridiculous in a way if you know the reality of the area that Mm -hmm. i grew up um southeast missouri if you look up um it is it is a fact it is one of the top 10 poorest uh areas of the country Mm because there's nothing down there (laughs) Right, no industry there's no no industry there's nothing Mm -hmm. there's nothing and so growing up, kind of being surrounded by such immense poverty, but not realizing that it was poverty until I got out of it. And be like, oh, wow, this is, we're poor. Right? We are poor. <laughs> we are poor people out here. And just kind of being influenced by how, where I grew up, although people, people realize it's hard down there, but it's, I don't think. I, I, I would imagine I can't be the only person that while I was in it totally couldn't grasp the immense violence that poverty, mm. that poverty really was on mm. our everyday existence. Um, mm. uh, when I grew up and I'm people that are living there now and grew up there now. Um, it, cause it really took me leaving and going to college mm-hmm. and being in a different, uh, you know, community city town, whatever you want to call it, to realize, wow, this, this is some poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's another thing that really, I think, influenced the way in which I think about the world, and I tried to convey through writing.
1: So you're telling us that you were at the intersection of class, race, gender <laughs> well see
0: technically we all are but then how it plays out evangelical yes. Christianity mm-hmm. right?
1: so in within the eye of this perfect storm right mm-hmm. you're being given this theology of punishment basically mm-hmm. which is a similar theology that I was raised with it's a theology of punishment like we're trying not to go to hell
3: mm-hmm. we're right.
1: trying to go to your reward we're trying right. to go to heaven And there are some behaviors that can keep you out of that. Right. So there had to be a moment, several defining moments, where you had doubt.
3: Oh yes.
1: (laughs) And I wanted to know: did they dovetail with your coming of understanding of yourself as a woman?
2: Um, the doubts I had about the religion in which I was raised, and really didn't have much to do with my gender um it really had to do with just um just seeing the immense ridiculousness of the bible that i was forced (laughs) to read i remember one day in sunday school we were reading i don't remember the exact passage in the old testament but it was one of the it was one of the it was one of the war chapters where the you know the israelites are commanded by God to kill their yeah. guys. kill everyone kill everyone yeah. because it filter Gerjealmains pick up some souls Exactly because you know mm-hmm. just you know, can't let these people live because they're just going to continue yeah. you know worshipping their pagan gods and I remember I asked my Sunday school teacher I'm like this is why would God allow this to happen you're killing these innocent people that had nothing to do with what their their husbands or their fathers were going to war for like why would this is, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And my, I remember my Sunday school teacher being like, well, you know, that's, that's what, that's what God commanded them to do. And, you know, if they didn't do it, then these people would just, you know, kill them back. I'm like, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> just, just like, just keep killing each other for no reason. So that to me was really the moment in which I was like, this doesn't make any sense. This is so not, this is so not real. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I got older and I started to realize more about gender and my sexuality. And then obviously that was the more like that is what people see in the movies as the the re the, the veil uplifting, like, oh, I was praying to God every morning and night to just change me. And of course, yeah, I went through that too. Mm-hmm. But to me it really was more like seeing kind of how how ridiculous it was it was, mm-hmm. you know. Um
1: well I think it's interesting that what pricked your doubt was the violence and you called violence. poverty violence yes mm-hmm. interesting
2: yeah um I didn't grow up like I got like some whoopings mm-hmm. obviously I'm from the country mm-hmm. you spank your kids in the country <laughs> right I don't agree with it as an adult but I don't have children I probably will never have children mm-hmm. but like you know where I'm from that's just that's just oh your kid's acting out Mm -hmm. you need to get you need to get them together Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um but it was not an overt violent like i i never felt like when i got a spanky although it was a form of violence Mm -hmm. i wasn't scarred for life from it Mm -hmm. um that's just how i felt um and my my parents were very christian they were sober they didn't drink so there was no like incredibly violent episodes ever in my house mm-hmm. so I just was never exposed to like real violence mm-hmm. and so like obviously reading about it or hearing about it or hearing the justification for it just, yeah it did rub me the wrong way mm-hmm. um, because it just was so foreign to me mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: but yeah I as an adult I can see how the poverty we were surrounded in and the ways in which it affected the people I grew up with, it was violent. That was a form of violence that people just accepted because that's just how it was down there, you mm-hmm. know? That's just what that's just what happened. Mm-hmm. And so that also was a kind of a turning point, just being realizing that this, there's another way in which we could be living our lives. You know, we don't have to be constantly like enduring this crippling poverty mm-hmm. and these these stories that allow us to justify being violent to other people who don't look like us or believe like us or pray like us you know we don't have to be doing this to each other Mm -hmm. and so yeah a lot of that I try to explore through my work and yeah Mm
3: -hmm.
1: so when you went to college Mm -hmm. um how did you how did you choose to leave your community what what made you want to leave
2: uh well I mean I
1: or were your parents promoters of college and going away? My
2: parents were were big promoters of me utilizing education to get out of there. Mm-hmm. I did very well in school. Um, I always had good grades, mm-hmm. and so for me, um, graduating high school, I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew I wanted to write. I just didn't know what form that would eventually take. I thought I was gonna be a journalist, so um, right. I wanted to go to a journalism school, so I went to the University of Missouri, Columbia, the zoo, for people that are familiar. And my parents were very supportive of me going to college. They wanted me to get an education because they never they were never fortunate enough to go to college mm-hmm. and get any education really higher than high school, you mm-hmm. know, diploma. So they were definitely supportive of of me doing that although four years at mizzou did make me realize i didn't want to be a journalist okay (laughs) but it gave me a lot of great skills i i I don't regret doing journalism as a major uh but when i left and graduated from mizzou i just really realized i don't i don't want to be a journalist i want to do the creative stuff because that's really where i felt the energy, the the passion, the creativity, that's where I found myself um, really gravi- gravitating towards. And so I've been doing that ever since. But um, probably my parents wished I probably had pursued journalism <laughs> as a career because I would have like a big, you know, adult job mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of mm-hmm. being just a, a poet slash artist. Okay. But, you know, uh, But yeah, they they were very supportive and when I went off to college they were they were they were supportive of me doing that because like I said, where I'm from, I mean, there was no there really was no option for me Mm. staying there. There would have been nothing for me there at all. Except of just slowly finding ways to to become comfortable or numb to living a false sense of like identity of Okay, I guess I'm gonna have to marry a woman and pretend to be a man, and maybe have mm-hmm. kids and work some job that I don't really like. Mm-hmm. That was not gonna happen for mm-hmm. me. I I wasn't gonna allow it mm-hmm. um, for myself. I never was gonna do that. Uh, but you know, if I were to do, if I were going to stay there in some crazy alternate universe, that <laughs> would have been what had happened. You know, because mm-hmm. that's just what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. They were, they were supportive of me leaving. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, going back to, like, the conversation about violence and then also to tie it into um, just the decision to leave and do something different, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm starting to think about how um, – I think people more and more are talking about how the antidote to violence is not necessarily nonviolence because – that in itself sometimes results in more suffering for people. But that's the antidote to violence is imagination.
2: Oh, yes, of course. And mm-hmm. so I'm
0: thinking about your blog, which is entitled uh-huh. The mm-hmm. Queer Imagination Liberates Its Dance With Self." Itself.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes.
0: And I have some feelings and wonderings and thoughts about why I believe that that's an amazing statement. But I want to mm-hmm. know from you, what do you mean by that?
2: Uh, well, what I mean by that. I think it starts with my definition of queer. My definition, I I identify identify as a queer trans woman. And although I am primarily attracted to men, my definition of queer is really a political definition. It's a way Mm -hmm. that I see the world as a possibility to exist that isn't dependent on these forms of oppression that we have seen clearly are not Working. You know, they're clearly not working. <laughs> white supremacy is not working. Sure. You yeah. know, capitalism is not working.
3: Mm-hmm. Patriarchy
2: mm-hmm. is not working. Mm-hmm. So, for me, queer has always been a political identity. And so, for me, the queer imagination is this imagination to reimagine the way in which the world could exist. And mm. it also means to me that we can't really depend on well-meaning liberals to do that for us. So no one mm. can save. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Like, although I love, I love Barack Obama and the former first lady, <laughs> Michelle Obama, you know, they could not liberate us. Right. Mm-hmm. They, you, know, we, you know, we can't depend on, you no know, well-meaning, progressive, liberal people mm. to do that. I mean, it really takes a queer imagination to liberate all of us mm. and so i gotta give you a snap <laughs> <laughs> okay we're all
0: snapping here yeah. so
2: um it's true it's, i was just <laughs> reverently
0: being quiet like oh. yeah. <laughs> making something sounds like mm.
2: so uh, yeah so that mean um so yeah because that 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 title um came about at a time when you know a lot of people were Think, where a lot of people, have, in my experience, thought, you know, the election of Barack Obama was going to totally shift the paradigm mm-hmm. in this country, and it didn't. I mean, it did for a, in certain ways, which I think are very, mm-hmm. very important. We shouldn't overlook that or pretend as if um, the uh, Obama administration didn't do a lot of great things. But it didn't radically shift the narrative. It didn't radically shift the way in which we are. Forming our society around real justice right. and real community. Right.
1: It didn't become what I was hoping it would become. Yeah. He would take off his mask on, on Inauguration Day and yeah. be like, guess what? I'm a tree-hugging leftist.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm a communist. Right, I'm a communist. <laughs> and we're about
1: to have a collective government. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It
2: wasn't what we thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So that, that title came out of the, really came out of the Obama years where I was writing a lot about you know, this, this, this imagination is what is ultimately going to save us if that's what we want. Um, because this the, the business as usual for traditional liberal politics is not cutting it. It's, mm-hmm. It also clearly is not working either. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: you know, I was just listening to this amazing podcast. I'm going to try to find the name of it. But it features one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Colors. Fabulous. And I posted what she said because it was so powerful to me. She said, Black Lives Matter is a rehumanizing project. Mm-hmm. Rehumanizing. And then she went on to talk about how Black bodies, and we can include oh. queer bodies, trans bodies, bodies of color, mm-hmm. are imagined as always dying as always, captured. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Think and of any
0: TV show, movie yeah. about... Exactly. That. Mm-hmm. She
1: talked about, you know, futuristic films, how there are no
3: people of color in the Right. Yeah.
1: Well, there's one Asian person who has to <laughs> run the technology. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, just in the background, not just in the background, anything. handling the technology. Yeah, right. Um, But I, what you said about the queer imagination is also a rehumanizing project. It's saying we're not always abject. We're not always um, tragic. Right. We're not always on the on a poster with rest in peace.
3: Right.
1: We are here, vital, important, and we will save our damn self.
2: Exactly. Yeah. That's. I think you've said it better than I could say it. But no, that's so true. That's exactly mm-hmm. that. Exactly where. That is exactly where I I, I try to come from mm. in my work in my writing, and that is that sentiment is what influences me like every day that I try to sit down and write something that feels somewhat um, uh, true to the way in which I want to live my life mm. and I want to see my world and my community and my family
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: grow and live as. In in really their true potential of justice, community, love, mm-hmm. understanding, empathy.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's move forward to St. Louis. Okay. Mm-hmm. How did you
2: wind up in St. Louis? Oh wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I went. Uh, so right after graduation was the recession, and mm-hmm. no one had jobs. No one could get a job. Everyone was getting fired. So it was really hard for me to. To, um, I, w- I had moved to like S- St. Charles County. I was working a shitty, shitty mall job and I hated my life. Mm-hmm. And I eventually had kind of a mini mental breakdown. I had to move back with my family for a summer. Mm-hmm. And which was actually, strangely, like probably the best thing that could have happened to me. I smoked a lot of weed, <laughs> I re- wrote a lot, and mm-hmm. I read a lot. And I've pretty much been every day with my grandmother.
1: <laughs> really? I, yeah, she, uh, under, the,
2: under the under mm-hmm. yes, the
1: tutelage. Yes.
2: <laughs> well, uh, my grandmother, my grandmother is from was born in Arkansas mm-hmm. and grew up in, and lived in the small town that I'm from. Mm-hmm. And so you know gra- how grandmas are; they're different than your parents. They don't mm-hmm. they don't care. <laughs> they're just like you know, just come on over. Mm-hmm. You know. So even though I have a kind of a interesting relationship with my parents, where their 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 religion does keep them from truly understanding me mm-hmm. and all of me. Mm-hmm. My grandmother and my grandfather was much different. They're just like you know, this is our grandchild, whatever. Like just mm-hmm. come on over, you need mm-hmm. to come over. And so my family knew that I was going through a really hard time, and so I had moved back for the summer, and i had to spend a lot of time my grandma's garden and hanging out with her reading a lot and writing a lot and around that time a friend of mine had suggested i come to this queer uh camping trip that was out in lebanon missouri in the middle of the woods Mm. it was about 500 lgbt folks just Camping out there, Mm -hmm. walking around naked, (laughs) partying. Fantastic. And I was like, I was like, but I don't have any money. I like, I'm broke. I have no job. And this is kind of like to me, um, solidifies you know what real chosen queer family can be, should be. She was like, just come, like just come. We'll feed you. Mm -hmm. You just need to get away from everything for a minute. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay. So I came, and it was a life-altering experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be around so many queer people just living and walking 100% free in the woods, away Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. everybody, away Mm -hmm. from civilization. It was very interesting, and I met my uh, ex-boyfriend, There Mm -hmm. and we just hit it off and we had sex and I Mm -hmm. thought I was I thought I was just gonna have fun and Mm I probably will never see this person again but somehow we just started we kept in contact after that camping trip and we started dating and he asked me to come to St Louis and move in with him I was like okay I have have nothing else to do so (laughs) let's just do it Mm -hmm. I just took a chance and I came even though I. St. Louis wasn't a total, I wouldn't say it wasn't a huge risk, like my father um, was born in St. Louis, so a lot of his family is still in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. so I had some connection to St. Louis, and I had several really good friends of mine from college who are St. Louisans Mm -hmm. and and lived here um, after college as well, so I was like, okay, I know a couple people in St. Louis that wouldn't be totally, like, out of my realm, and so I moved here with my ex, and we were together for about four years. and after we that relationship ended, I was just like, well, I'm gonna stay here. I know a lot of people, I have a job and I'm kinda of, i writing and so it's just kinda mm-hmm. kinda of, kind of stuck here. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Saint Louis sticky a sticky, yeah, sticky kinda yeah. place. You I said could, that I
0: think you said that, um, uh, Treasurer, you said that Saint Louis is a sticky city or someone someone city. I know has said. It's kinda yeah. St Louis is a sticky city. If that's what yeah,
2: happened, I, I, I just I, got stuck.
3: Yeah,
1: you know, yeah. I always tell that story of um coming across the bridge from Illinois into mm. St. Louis, the Poplar Bridge, mm-hmm. where the one where you see the uh, the arch to your right. Mm-hmm. And this little voice in my heart said, I love you, St. Louis. And I was oh. like, how fucking dare you? Love how dare you? Right, right. You love an abusive lover. Yes, yes. <laughs> and like, but it just worms its way it in does. the it really, it
2: really does. It really and does. It really does. And then when you
1: fight for something, you really love it. Yeah. That's so true. I think that that's real. the Ferguson uprising yeah. Oh, yeah. bonded a lot of us. All of us have stakeholders all over the country who tell us, you could be doing this in this yep. city. Yep. Where everybody sitting at this table is the bomb. Mm-hmm. We could go somewhere else and do something, but mm-hmm. we're going to do it here. Right. And they're going to take it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. We're we're mindful of the softly murder coming soon. (laughs) Anthony Smith and his family Uh, in our prayers. Yes. Um, Yeah. Can we say that again? When you fight for something,
3: Mm. you love it. That's right. Just for our
0: listeners, just to sit with that. That's so powerful. Mm -hmm. It
2: is. I agree. I have a very similar feeling. Even though I'm from Missouri, mm-hmm. I never and grew up in St. Louis. I have no real association with St. Louis other than maybe visiting throughout maybe childhood once mm-hmm. or twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but living here, yeah, you do find yourself loving it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just wake up one morning, and you're like, I. Yeah, this is my home. <laughs> it's just as strange as it as mm-hmm. as strange as it is that the next day you're gonna wake up and be like, I fucking hated. Yes. fuck Am I here? But it it yeah, is. Have your
1: famous Facebook spin out.
2: Yes. Like,
1: Are there jobs in Poughkeepsie?
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. I we I think we've all had our Facebook spin It's Like I'm out. Right. KRD. Kick rocks deuces. I'm leaving. But no, you to do. Yeah, you just. don't leave Mm -hmm. you stay here something happens or you meet someone or you hear an amazing or witness or consume amazing bit of art or Mm -hmm. poetry or painting and it's from someone that's here and you're like wow this this is this is amazing yeah Um, so yeah i totally agree with that
0: One of the things that uh, me and Treasure have talked about in planning this podcast is Mm -hmm. that it's so important to have voices from flyover country or at least like coming out of flyover country Mm -hmm. because so many stories are from the coasts. Yes. And Mm -hmm. even though we both have roots in Mississippi and in California, that's something that we recognize. So as someone who grew up in rural Missouri and is now in St. Louis, um, do you have thoughts on what are some of the more important stories that need to be told or...
2: Oh, I feel like people don't understand the 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 intense the intensity of what we may call in twenty seventeen a liberation movement exists here in mm. in Missouri mm-hmm. from Dred Scott yeah, to right. Ferguson mm. to the, the first Supreme Court case allowing A LGBT student organization called Gay Liberation out of Mizzou in the seventies to exist.
1: I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Trying
1: to lean back on her chair, looking work to job like what? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Sideways. Yeah, like there's so much, so many untold stories, and I think, um, I think it's really, it's really once you hear these stories and it becomes a part of you. Um, or you become a part of a story like Ferguson, Mm -hmm. it kind of makes you realize that there is important work to be done here, Mm -hmm. that the work isn't done, and that a lot of what we are able, how we are able to live our lives as people trying to seek liberation, that work is coming from ancestors, before us from this part of the country Mm. so yeah Mm -hmm. it's yeah I think it's very important
0: yeah and it's so related to our earlier conversations about like what is liberation really about and in my mind I think a huge part of it is about agency and -hmm. it's about power kind of like you don't wait for other people to tell you what to do and you kind of tell yourself that you know what you feel is right you can go ahead and so there is something about the coastal and then the midwest dynamic where it's like Mm -hmm. there's so many power holders whether they're elected leaders or they're like major nonprofits or Mm -hmm. whatever they might be and and, um media Mm -hmm. that says you know this is how things go or these this is how things will go or this is how we see it from here fly in Literally, oh, <laughs> if right. we're talking about the Ferguson uprising, mm-hmm. fly out and then once the camera leaves, shit really gets real. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, as a trans woman um, writing, I just I I personally am like in awe sometimes of the stories I find out about St. Louis and Missouri in general. Mm-hmm. For the fact that the first uh, autobiography about up uh, by a anonymous Gay man was written here in St. Louis and published here so in many St. Louis. Our eyes like, are just like open. Obit- literally, this obit- queer
1: archive of history. Right. I'm like, what? That's, to, that's the grant we need to help you write.
2: To excavating
1: the, the queer yes, history. Yeah. To <laughs> the
2: to the unknown and unlike archived history of trans women of color here in St. Louis Mm -hmm. at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some amazing articles you can find from the Post Dispatch and other archives here in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Um, LGBT history project. Yeah, my favorite is a trans woman who was hired at a downtown department store to waitress and worked until her employer realized she was a quote-unquote, a cross-dresser <laughs> in the paper and then getting fired. But oh, it's wow. like, you know, like, the, the, the wrist people to yes. t- t- back in the day. Um, uh, there, another one of my favorite stories is, uh, it was in the paper, It's it, the headline was, um, what was it? It was, uh, oh, what was it? Something like, um... The She-Man, oh yeah, the She-Man mm. of the Ozarks, no, went, Ozarks. The, of the She-Man of the Ozarks, the She-Man of the Ozarks, who went on a robber, a bank robbery spree
3: That's through Missouri,
2: <laughs> and she was described in the paper of as holding up a bank in a in her in a wig. And a like a needle needlepoint purse and a dress. <laughs> that's so and perfect. And rob banks. She
1: was like, if I'm gonna rob this bank, I'm going. But it's to be like, did, did she start?
0: <laughs> did did she, was she the actual person who started Occupy though? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what I wanted. Right, then, right. That's a genesis
2: That that might have been the genesis, that probably was the genesis, and she was on the run, and she ended up in St. Louis before she was caught, but like, just so, and like, yeah, so like, I think, um, for me, right now, recently, I mean, I'm getting a lot of inspiration, Mm. you know, finding out more about the history of, uh, specifically for me, trans women and gender non-conforming and queer people here in Missouri. St. Louis. Mm,
1: I love that work. Count me in on that work. <laughs> um, so we we've made it up to you coming to St. Louis, um, which was through of your ex, mm-hmm. as well as some association with the city. I, yeah. I did too. my My mother's sister moved here and raised her family very near Ferguson, uh, in a place called Cool Valley, which is basically. Ferguson and um and uh, actually my daughter's baby shower was in Ferguson the St. Louis leg of the baby shower because we took that baby shower on tour <laughs> <That's
0: amazing>. I <laughs> needed to
1: get coined up for that baby right. yes. <laughs> if you're going
0: to have a baby you got to make sure you, you, got, what, look, yes.
1: look, you, gotta you what you <laughs> you got to do what you got to do um, but when we talk about the Ferguson uprising one of my memories is seeing Joss Periodically mm-hmm. at downtown actions. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, I will see Joss, and we both will be documenting and pissed off, and we would hug, you know. <laughs> and um, I just wanted to know, like, how did the Ferguson uprising kind of shape your view? Uh,
2: well, of St. Louis. Of St. Louis. Uh, well, when Ferguson happened and Michael Brown was murdered, mm-hmm. it it I, I I always look at it at I still look at it as someone that tried to support the dedicated organizers and actors mm. as much as I could. Mm-hmm. There were people that were at every action, That's that right. did every protest. But before they and, were even
0: called action, it was just the, you were going yeah, out. Yes, yeah, exactly, and I,
2: exactly. Dreams, yeah. And I was, I never claimed to be one of those people because I wasn't, but I felt like, this is something that needs to be supported by all of us. If we are truly, if we're truly down mm-hmm. to be woke or liberated mm-hmm. or for justice, then it is our duty to really support as much as we could. Whether, I mean, if you have the money, even funds, if you have the physical ability to be out there in the streets, you know, be out there in the streets, you have the ability to give resources to the organizers, do that. So for me, it was like, okay, I don't have money, mm-hmm. but I'm, I am i able-bodied. Like, yes. I can be out there. Um, and I, witnessing,
1: yeah. witnessing is work. Yeah. Because yeah. as yeah. you can see from your recovered queer and trans histories, people try to erase. They do. And mm-hmm. they'll rewrite the narrative. Re-
2: mm-hmm, they do. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was like, okay, I can't be out there every day. But when people are sending out a mass text message mm-hmm. and I know I can do it, mm-hmm. I will be there. And I also know that there were a lot of people that were specifically dedicated to, uh, to disrupting the normal flow of a white supremacist police state here mm-hmm. in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like, okay, what can I also do on there? I can document this accurately mm-hmm. so that when it's over and the police unions want to rewrite what happened i can be there like no actually yep. that's not what happened no, no. i was there i have proof i have photographic video yeah. anecdotal evidence you know mm-hmm. this, is, this is not what you know y'all thought it was on fox news mm-hmm. every night it was right. something totally different so for me as someone um who went and was trained as a journalist through my uh undergrad education, I was like, okay, I'm going to be here taking photos, as many photos as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, jotting down as much dialogue as I could hear from people out in the streets. And uh, for me, that culminated in a piece titled, The Narrative Will Kill You Sooner or Later. Mm. And that's a pretty a longer prose poem that really incorporates a lot of what I saw and heard in Ferguson Mm. um and is a way in which I have written it to incorporate and really place queer and trans people of color in the center of that uprising because they were there from the beginning Mm -hmm. um and that should I feel should be and leading Mm -hmm. yes and leading and that was my my way of helping document um, a, a a an intersectional approach to liberation that started from queer and trans black folk here in St. Louis, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, again, was not, that's not going to be reported on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC mm-hmm. that, you know, it was queer black women that helped spear mm-hmm. Ferguson. It was trans people of color here in St. Louis that helped cohesively organized people Mm -hmm. um so yeah it 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 definitely also influenced the way in which i see our police operate here in Mm -hmm. st louis Mm -hmm. um even though i may i never really had i personally never had any interactions with the police that i could write down and say i was brutalized by the police. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of privileges Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the way in which I look and how I have certain class privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have never been brutalized by the police, but Ferguson, even though I knew it was an issue, Mm -hmm. Ferguson really opened my eyes to, wow, the police here in St. Louis really are on one. Mm -hmm. They are on one. Mm -hmm. And For me, it influenced my work in that going forward, I know we we cannot just take their word for it. That's not, we don't live in this, you know, we don't live in like, this is not the Andy Griffin show anymore. (laughs) This is not, you know, this is not Mayberry anymore. We are in, we are living in a country where the majority of people have been apathetic and almost almost gleefully enjoying the fact that police Mm. in their communities are going to harass and brutalize people of color and especially black people in our country That we we have become okay with it. Mm -hmm. It's something that this is just, this is how the way, this is how, this is what the police are supposed to do. Right. And so Ferguson really opened my eyes to this is how mainly white people want their police to act in Mm -hmm. this country. They want the police to be harassing Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: violating the constitutional rights of black people and people of color and poor people. Mm -hmm. This is, this is what we have allowed to happen and we, want to happen and if we don't want it to happen anymore then we really need to be stepping up as much as possible and questioning everything the police say because Ferguson really proved to us that they're lying most of the time Mm -hmm. like they're lying most of the time
3: Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm
0: curious how your witness has interacted with your white like, family or people in your hometown. Yeah. Is that, it, do you still talk to them? Is, is um, that something? Yeah.
2: Well, when Ferguson, you yeah, know, when Ferguson went down, I would talk to my parents mm-hmm. about like attending actions and they were not bored. They like, you should not be out there. They were um,
0: worried about you.
2: They, oh, they were worried, but they're yeah. like, we don't, we don't understand. I'm like, well, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't get it. Like the police are not, Doing what they are supposed to be doing they're Mm -hmm. not protecting and serving Mm -hmm. like and I try to have conversations with my family and of course it's a little bit difficult to have conversations especially if your parents are you know uh, older Mm -hmm. um, white yeah um, don't have a police force in their backyard that targets them Mm -hmm. so it's hard to get them to grasp that but it was important for me to tell them like this is not this is not how the police operate in St. Louis. It is a mm-hmm. different world in St. Louis. And when 50% of the population in St. Louis is black and the majority of the police force is white mm-hmm. and they are actively targeting people of color so that they can make money mm-hmm. of, yeah. of them, then we have a problem. Yeah. Um. So, but, I mean, they never, I mean, they, I mean, when they, in the day they know me well enough to know that I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, really all they could say is like, well, be careful, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is another thing about my, about people that have raised me. They don't realize the immense, um, the immense discrimination that happens in other parts of this country because mm-hmm. they, they, they're not exposed to it. Um, and part of me does know that, you know, a lot of people like my parents don't want to be exposed to it. Mm-hmm. They'd rather not know about it mm-hmm. because then it does it allows them to not have to, like I said earlier, address their own complicity in the situation. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? We we've entered um we've entered an interesting time in the culture and. We've entered a time of hyper-visibility of trans women of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we have Janet Mock. Or certain trans women right, of color. Right, certain trans sure. women of color. Yeah. And we talk, I mean, you know, we think about some of our wealthier, you know, Caitlin, mm-hmm. very wealthy, very white. And then you have some who have different stories. And what I would like to know as we kind of round out our interview At the beginning we asked who raised you so now you are this woman growing up becoming Mm. becoming a writer becoming an activist becoming what would you say to younger trans women of
2: color
3: Mm.
1: about their maturation process growing up
2: i would say that i mean for me i know there are some trans women that when they transition, that's 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 if They don't want any interaction with the rest of the community, which is fine. Like okay. I can't I can't judge um, a person reaching a a status of being so passable and so stealth that they are able to operate and move through society very much like we see in historical accounts of very white passing black people in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. E- Choosing to live a totally new life as a white person mm-hmm. when they are finding a way to totally alleviate themselves from white supremacy mm-hmm. um, by mm-hmm. the mere fact that they just have to be so, so fair skinned. And mm-hmm. I, I see that sometimes with trans women. And I, so I can't judge them. I can only talk about what my choice has been. And that was I made a choice very quickly after I went to college surround myself with uh, queer, black folk. Mm -hmm. Queer and gay and trans black and POC people and those were the people that raised me to be the person I am Mm -hmm. today. They were some of the first activists I met Mm -hmm. at the zoo. Um, Some of the first organizers I met Um, and some of the first people to really not give a fuck about the dealings of our white classmates, <laughs> and so I would suggest, and that, was, and so for me, it was important to surround myself and make a family with those people because I knew those people would have my back, mm. um, and they have um, through my through my transitions, uh, and so for other trans women, I can't really, I can't really give any solid piece of advice that will work for their for their situation but if a trans woman has a has an idea of who she wants to be that isn't that is unapologetic about her her Mm -hmm. journey and her past I would Mm -hmm. say you know definitely surround yourself with other fierce queer and trans people of color Um, Even if you're a white trans woman, (laughs) please surround yourself with, you know, queer trans people of color because, you know, if they are really going to be the people that are going to be able to speak truth to power and really disrupt the systems that need to be disrupted Mm -hmm. and really hold your hand through some really hard times. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would be my suggestion and my piece of advice. And just keeping an open, open arms to other people around you, um, especially younger, queer and trans, mm-hmm. GNC, gender nonconforming babies around us, <laughs> because mm-hmm. they need elders too. You, yeah. know. Mm-hmm. you know, they're going to need um, elder trans people and elder trans women and elder GNC people to look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, so just keeping open arms around the people that are going to come up at you because those people... Are gonna need. They're gonna. They're gonna. Especially in the world that we're living in now, they're really going to need those elders in their lives to help them deal with some fucked up shit. that we're about to <laughs> deal with with Trump. So, right. You know.
1: Oh well, that that I think that that's a beautiful way to end. Talking <laughs> about talking about putting our arms around the babies. Yes. All the babies, the GNC babies, the babies of color.
3: Yes. All the yes.
1: babies. Oh. Uh, let's put our arms around them, and this is this has been who raised you.
0: This has been who raised you, and so for our listeners, I think that's a that's a good question. How can you put your arms around the babies
3: around you? How
0: can you use your imagination to liberate your own damn self, but also <laughs> do that in community? You know, because yeah, right? apparently you need a lot of it. <laughs> These are some <laughs> tough times, y'all. Uh, and and what um, as you move forward. What are you carrying with you in all of this? How, how are you working through your journey as you, as you write or as you, um, you know, put clothes on or as you make art? Uh, there's all sorts of ways to express yourself.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So we ask you to visit whoraisedupodcast.com to learn more and support us. You can book us or donate to buy us a cup of tea and support media (laughs) by people of color from flyover country. Yes. And even if you want to talk to some of our guests, we can put you in touch. But – You know, we'll talk to you first. Um, You can like us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at podcast to suggest poets, guests, topics, and to help with transcription. This is co-hosted by Treasure Shields Redmond and Karen Jalian Yang. That's me. Uh, We have consulting by Farfetch Collective. Contact wearefarfetched at gmail.com. To learn more about how they can help you launch or expand your project, business, or nonprofit with their agency framework. And thank you so much, Joss. Thank you so much for being beautiful sure. and yeah. being on your, you. our show today. Um, so your first book. Yes. An Rainbow <laughs> Yes. is coming out soon. It's gonna be published in twenty seventeen by Indolent Books. Yes, right? hopefully.
2: It is I Books. Crossed. Yes, Indolent Books is the publisher. Um, I'm hoping it gets published by the end of the year. It might take a little bit longer, but mm-hmm. yes, um, I'm trying to finish my first manuscript. So okay.
3: yeah. Awesome. Hope so,
2: that, yes, hopefully, um yeah. Hopefully it'll be out um, in the world so you can read it and share it and yeah.
0: Gifted, yes. Lots <laughs> of L- 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 work ahead pounds. of you, right? right? Teach it, uh, teach it.
2: There's other. You could also teach it. Yeah.
0: So, how else <laughs> can our listeners support you, John?
2: Um, to be honest, um, supporting me right now would mean, um, supporting in the host of local and national transgender, um, legal and civil rights organizations. Um, if you're a St. Louis local, I would totally suggest donating to the Metro Trans Umbrella Group. Um, they are mm-hmm. one of the biggest uh, trans and gender nonconforming conforming um, organizations for the St. Louis metro area um, and the Metro East. Uh, national organizations, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, is also a great, great organization mm-hmm. to donate to. Um, I say that because right now, the forces against us have a lot more money yeah. <laughs> than we do. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think it's going to definitely take a lot of energy, a lot of lawsuits, a lot of organizing, a lot of disruptions mm-hmm. in your face, shutting it down. Mm-hmm. So the more uh, resources we can give these organizations to help facilitate the work on the ground and the policy work, I think that that would be the best way to support me mm-hmm. and my trans and GNC fans. So yeah yep look You're out for fun. the
0: fam <laughs> thanks so much
3: just need to know